1: Hi, theory welcome to high theory in this podcast we get high on the substance of theory i'm sharanik boshu and i'm kim adams we are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself friends of high theory Thank you so much for talking to us and listening to us this past year. Our audience has grown way beyond what we had expected when we started on this journey. If you like what we do, please consider rating us and writing a review on the platform you use to listen to high theory. Many thanks in advance. Today, I am speaking with Elizabeth McHenry about Negro literature. Elizabeth, can you introduce yourself to our listeners?
0: My name is Elizabeth McHenry. I'm a professor of English at New York University, and I work mainly in Black print culture studies and African-American literature the 19th and early 20th century. Thanks
1: so much for coming to High Theory. So let me ask you our first question, which is, what the heck is Negro literature?
0: I use Negro literature as it's in the title of my book. And I mean, I might have used African-American literature or Black literature or some variation of that, but I am looking mainly at authors, literary practices, and um, literary institutions from around the turn from the 19th to the 20th century. And at that moment, around the year 1900, African-American literary practitioners and African-Americans generally adopted the term Negro with a signal difference from the way it had been used throughout the 19th century. And that is they capitalized the N. And they did that as a mode of respect, a a forward-looking gesture to gain the respect the lowercase n did not give them. So by using the word Negro, I honor and respect what they themselves did which was make this real effort to essentially appropriate that word Negro and use it as a way to identify themselves, to identify what they were doing, to identify a future that was different from the past. So really, I'm looking at a very specific moment in what could be considered African American literature and imagining the way that that literature at that very specific moment was made, how Black Literary practitioners really thought about re-establishing African American literature, thinking about it at a moment that was um, so discouraging, such a low point in black history. To think about what they were doing, I'm not making a distinction that black literature doesn't begin until the beginning of the 20th century, and that anything that came before that, for instance, works from the 19th century, were not African American literature. What I'm doing is trying to really get at the specificity of this particular historical moment when Black literary practitioners really made this tremendous effort to establish Black literature, to think about it as a field of study, to identify what was included as Black literature, what wasn't included. And it's not that those things also didn't happen earlier, but my particular interest is in this moment when the term Negro became a point of pride as opposed to a point of denigration. It sounds like you're looking at a particular historical moment in which this term is
1: being reappropriated by a community that it had been applied to in a derogatory sense in the past.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that this moment, for for a number of reasons, becomes important to uh, Black Americans themselves. And one reason is simply because of the turn of the century, right? Leaving behind things from the 19th century and moving forward to a new century a new opportunity, a new identity. But I think it's more than that because remember the year 1900 comes just four years after the legal case Plessy versus Ferguson and the legalization of segregation, which only confirmed what the social practices that were already in place. But it's also during a period of intense racial violence, which is only increasing around the turn of the century. And basically the political disenfranchisement of Black people. And so I think their literary efforts took on this renewed energy, right? If politics aren't going to work, right? If civil rights by political means are not going to happen, how do you gain recognition? How do you assert your citizenship abilities, even if you are not recognized as citizens? So I think this is all tied up in this moment that I identify with essentially the laying of groundwork for what becomes what we think of as African-American literature. And part of the reason why I sort of focus on this as a moment is also that it's the very moment of the sort of capitalist modernity of African-American literature. It's becoming a commodity. It's also taking shape as a form of literary study in the university. Black studies generally is sort of being reconceptualized and the study of literature generally is being reconceptualized from one of an idle pastime or sort of an eccentric, like collecting interest to a mode of study that has a place in the university in the way that we think of it now, a discipline with particular practices and particular subjects of study, objects of study. So there are many reasons why 1900 becomes a sort of key moment, I think, in Black literary studies how do I use Negro literature or
1: perhaps how do you use it in your book or how did practitioners, people who claim this term Negro literature use it in the past?
0: I think one of the, the key things to think about in relation to that question is that if my argument sort of holds water, which is that it was something that they were sort of grappling with, trying to make into something Something that actually doesn't cohere at that moment, but is laying the groundwork for something that will cohere later. I'm not sure it's something that then could be used at that very moment. But I do think that, in fact, the effort was to make Negro literature something that would gain African Americans recognition, a point around which community could sort of coalesce. So what did they make of it? Well, they thought it was full of promise, right? And it was full of promise as something that would move black people, for instance, from the most basic literacy. So the ability to read and write to a more advanced uh, understanding of what we now think of as like the promise of literature. What do you do with it? You know, how does it become a source of power or agency? Or another way of thinking of it, as something that is so firmly associated with black leadership that it allows for the recognition of black leaders and black voices and that's another way i think that they thought of of it and finally i guess another way to think of it is something that they thought of as a future possibility so i study uh, mary church terrell who wrote all these short stories that were never published and she came to realize that Her stories were never going to be published, um, not in the venues that she wanted them published, the venues associated with sort of the highest literary standards in the United States. And she nevertheless never stopped writing them. But more importantly, she never stopped submitting them to those very same publications that she knew were going to reject them. What I argue is that she was really mounting a campaign that made... Clear that made crystal clear that made very apparent her own failure so that future failures by Black writers were less likely. In other words, it, it's almost as if she wanted to document or archive her own failure as a way not to ensure that she would succeed because she knew she wouldn't succeed, but to essentially make public those journals' refusal to publish Black authors and to try and convince them to open up their pages to more voices. It's a forward-looking strategy at a very moment where the future of Black lives and Black literature was very uncertain, right? It was, it, there was no evidence that Terrell was going to succeed, but she nevertheless you know, worked to lay this groundwork of her own failure in order to make these future failures less likely.
1: That's a really interesting example, the way that she is using failure as a political practice. I was thinking as you were saying this, that she is ensuring a readership of at least one. But that's not really what she's doing, it sounds like, right? It sounds like she is, in fact, trying to ensure a future readership for Black authors in these very publications that are rejecting her work by documenting their rejection of her.
0: Well, I think she's actually doing both. I mean, you know, on the one hand, she's ensuring a future readership in the very magazines that had rejected her writing. But one of the things I argue is that, you know, we look at Terrell as a failed author, and our notion of failure is very straightforward and simple. And it's associated with the fact that she didn't publish in venues that we associate with publication. But of course, she did ensure that she had a readership. And it wasn't only those editors. Who rejected her stories. But it was also the people that she wrote to and asked for literary advice and asked, you know, why won't these stories be published? What are the chances of my stories being published? She also participated in correspondence courses around writing short stories, and those also gave her. Essentially, a reading public. One thing that I look at in the book is the way that our idea of failure and our understanding of it is far too simple. And it allows us to overlook huge swaths of literary history that are important for the very reasons that failure is much more complicated, particularly in the case of my study for a Black woman in the early 20th century. I mean, everything she did was supposed to fail. And so, in a very real way, if we overlook what she did that failed, we are only acknowledging the basic reality of the circumstances in which she lived. But to get at the nuances of that failure and what I argue is to more fully understand what her failure meant and what she did with her failure, right? The fact that she publicized it so widely, the fact that she was undaunted from making a campaign out of it speaks to her very use of failure in the terms that you talk, right? It becomes a political strategy. It becomes a way of rejecting the world in which she lives that expects her to fail.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if we only look for literary success, right, we're, we're only looking for the the terms of that success as dictated by the present world order.
0: Yeah. Which was built to exclude women like Terrell. Failure becomes a very complicated notion. And of course, it's wrapped up in ideas of literary value. But when I look at Terrell, I'm not trying to resuscitate her and, in fact, install her in a canon of Black literature, you know, that her stories are must-read stories. What I'm trying to do is to look at the ways that what we have always thought about as success sits next to these other literary attempts, that we learn more, in fact, about what success looks like. Or at least our our traditional notions of it, when we look more closely at those things that we think of as failed, right? They're no less a part of literary history. And in fact, we open up to a much more nuanced and a much more textured understanding of literary history if we study things that didn't succeed or were only partially successful alongside those things that we think of as standard notions of success. I think this
1: is actually a great point to transition to our final question. How will negro literature save the world?
0: Really the answer lies in the study of the humanities and why we study, you know, what it means to be human. Literature is in the center of that. And one might argue that in fact it, the study of black literature is even in the center of that. What we're doing when we're studying literature and what we're doing when we study the humanities is we're thinking about how we live and what does it mean to be alive and what are the possibilities of the human, right? What have they been? What are they going forward? Even that very phrase, Black Lives Matter. Well, we are living in a moment. We have been living in a moment for years and years and centuries where we have this collective failure to even recognize that Black Lives Matter. And so this effort to give weight to that, to like, To understand, to give attention to even that question of, you know, how Black lives have mattered and how Black literature, what it teaches us that is perhaps different from what we learn when we look at what we might think of as mainstream lives, white lives, white literature, to understand different genealogies and traditions to hear stories with different emphases. It all helps us to answer these large questions that are part of humanistic study, to get a glimpse into Black lives in all their messy possibilities. The struggle, for instance, that tenuous process of building a literary tradition and establishing the importance of Black literature, that's how we understand what it has taken not only to create these traditions, but also to to survive, right? And to make visible the kinds of things that are important. My understanding of the humanities and humanistic study is deeply embedded in the kinds of things that we learn by studying Black literature generally across centuries, but also this particular moment of what I call, you know, the making of Negro literature and how we can come to understand more fully the distinctiveness of Black lives and also the ways that they are not at all distinct, right? The ways that they, that these efforts are recognizable across, you know, human life and across human history. Will Negro literature or will the humanities, will studying the humanities save us? In some ways, you know, it's the only thing that can save us. And I might have ended the book thinking about, you know, how it fit into larger humanistic study. But I do think the more pieces of history that we uncover, be it literary history or any other kind of history, the greater understanding we have of difference and different genealogies of how we all got to where we are, I think the greater understanding that we're going to have of how we move forward. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming and speaking with us on High Theory. Thank you. I
1: appreciate it. And thank you for listening to High Theory.